0: Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Padgett here and this week we're going to be chatting about typography with Michael Stinson from Typed but before we get into the interview I want to give a shout out to FreshBooks who has sponsored this season of the podcast. For those not familiar with FreshBooks it's an online accounting tool that simplifies tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses and getting paid online as a freelancer time is money and since it's a platform that kind of saves you time I highly recommend that you give it a go and you can do that with a free unrestricted 30-day trial just by heading over to freshbooks.com forward slash logo geek and be sure to enter logo geek and how did you hear about us?" section On the topic of typography, I'd also like to give a second shout out to Design Cuts who are currently celebrating their fifth birthday. And to celebrate that, they're pretty much giving away stacks of entire premium font families, including uh, fonts like... Um, Futura which is probably my favorite font and these are going for only five dollars a piece so I highly recommend that you go and check them out because you know that's an incredible bargain so um, go and have a look at those and you can do that just by heading over to logogeek.uk forward slash design cuts and by using that link rather than going directly to their site it's an affiliate link, so I'll get a small percentage of that sale, which helps to support the podcast. So if you do that, thank you very much. Anyway, as mentioned this week, I'm chatting with a real master of typography, Michael Stinson, who is the typography instructor at Laguna College of Art and Design, as well as the founder of type Ed, an educational and training platform that aims to educate designers about the fundamental theory of type. In this episode we discuss how to select a typeface, managing fonts, licensing, laying out type, book recommendation and so much more. It's a real deep dive geeky discussion on typography so I hope you guys will enjoy this. So let's get straight into this, here is the interview with Michael Stinson. So to start off the discussion, can you talk through the importance of good typography when working on logo design and brand identity? Okay, so
1: yeah, for typography, for branding and identity, let's say. I was taught that there's about five different kinds of logos. There's categories, right? And one of them is logotypes or word marks. Those are the kind of logos like FedEx that have no symbol. They're just a word, right? Or Coca-Cola or Johnson & Johnson. Right? So all the personality of the company has to come through the type itself. So if FedEx were a serif instead of a sans serif, what kind of company would it be, right? So the choice of typefaces and how the the characters are arranged and the length of the word and the number of syllables all kind of play into the wordmark, how we say the the name and how, how it looks to us. If FedEx was not purple and orange, that'd be a huge effect on it. If it was Starbucks green instead, we'd be confused, right? So, But the typeface itself has a lot to say about it in terms of all the personality,
0: like I said, in the company has to be the attitude
1: in that typeface that has to come
0: through it. So in order to capture that personality, what advice can you give us to help choose the most effective typeface for a project? Well, to me, it's it's, I explain
1: to my students and and colleagues that it's almost like you have to be a, a, a casting director on a film. So you have to you have to cast the right actor for the right job, for the right personality. So if you have a comedy, are you going to cast, you know, Jim Carrey or are you gonna cast like Jack Nicholson? What kind of humor are you talking about? You know, and who what kind of voice and pitch does it have to that particular sound of the film and, and the look of his face and all that kind of stuff, all the personality. So the typeface choice is is particular. And usually you start at sans serif or serif. So if you're looking for classic, you'd pick serif and then sans serif if you're updating. For instance, I just saw the new Burberry um, logo type as well. And it's went from serif to sans serif and it looks quite, quite different. So um, it really just depends on how classic they want to be or if they're moving in another direction like Burberry obviously did, not quite as classic as before. Because um, a lot of times in the brief sessions with clients, you know, you start saying classic, they're going to say old, and that's th- what they don't want to be. So that's a tough. I can see that happening in the meeting, if if you will, uh, going from a serif to sans serif, just talking about the typeface.
0: I like the analogy that you've used here, um, the casting director. It just outlines the importance of understanding the uh, business, so that you can find the right uh, typeface for that business Mm -hmm. on a side note I want to ask you about font management Um, I personally have the terrible habit of installing every font uh, that I've ever used and I know that I really need to start using a, a suitable font management software I'm aware that there's quite a few different options out there for this what would you recommend to use personally i use i used font book with the mac for a long time until i became
1: a type teacher <laughs> and um started acquiring more and more typefaces cuz right now i have about 4800 fonts wow <laughs> uh, i'm looking at my my machine and what i'm looking at right now as far as the font management system is suitcase fusion by extensis and i started using that third party kind of software when i had to have a lot of typefaces to teach typography so it's always worked well for me, and it categorizes everything in into classification and keeps everything organized. So I highly recommend that.
0: So how would you go about selecting a font when you have as many as 48,000 installed? Well, I have them in 17 or 18 different classifications. So the first four are
1: categorized as serifs, and the next, let's see, eight are categorized as sans serifs. Then you have all the, the, the display ones like script and black letter and ornament typefaces and stuff like that. Uh, I even have a Japanese folder. Um, so, But I try to teach classification because it helps the designer choose typefaces more uh, deliberately and accurately. Because the older they are, because classification is like music for, for typography in the sense that it's based on a historical timeline because we got serifs first and sans serifs came way later. So in that sense, serifs are a little bit more classic. So if you know different kinds of serifs and you're doing something for a high tech company like Google or something, you may not want to use the serifs at all. So you'll cut right to the sans serifs. And so I go to those quickly. So if you have them organized in such a way, you can cut to the chase quite quickly.
0: That makes sense. Um, yeah. being transparent i i feel like i need to um study typography further to understand those classifications properly right and uh, i'd imagine that listeners may feel the same way as i do so to expand on what you just spoken about what are the cl- um, typography classifications that you mentioned There are subcategories
1: like like um there's the subcategories there, just like in music, like alternative rock or alternative punk or alternative, you know, um, electronic. Let's say, but it's all under alternative. So I took I took my classifications from the book um, called The Anatomy of Type by Stephen Cole's, and um, he's got seventeen or eighteen classifications. So it goes for the serifs. It's humanist and then transitional and then rational slash modern and then contemporary. And then for uh, the sans serifs, you have your grotesques and neo-grotesques, and then you have your gothics, and then you have your geometric sands, and then you have your humanist sands and neo-humanist sands. And then there's three categories of slab that go with the serifs, grotesque, geometric, and humanist slabs. And then you get into the displays that are everything else, like wedge serifs and stuff like that. And uh, scripts and ornaments and black letter and that kind of thing. I, I usually lump black letter with scripts, usually.
0: I really feel I need to get myself a copy of the book that you mentioned, The 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 Anatomy of Type, right. uh, so that I can study each of those in, in more detail. So once you do have that knowledge, how does that allow you to choose a more effective typeface? Uh, it gets you to cut to the chase quickly. Because uh, if I if
1: I wanted to do a, a modern magazine, let's say, I know that by looking at magazines, a lot of them are starting to use slabs for body copy, for reading. So I'll go right to the slabs because I know that magazine wants to be more contemporary, like wired, let's say. So I might choose um, like a neo-grotesque or geometric slab, like Adele. I'm not sure what category that is, but, but I can go right to my folders and go right to those and compare the different ones in that classification of what's going to be the most readable.
0: It sounds like you've been able to uh, build up a, a library in your mind of how companies and industry use typefaces so that when you do need to make a choice, you can immediately select the most uh, suitable for the job. Like As a designer, I know that you can learn that on a project-to-project basis through research, but I feel like knowing those categories on top of that means that you can continuously observe and learn as you go about life. Um, it means that you can just quickly and efficiently narrow down your choice uh, to the perfect typeface rather than needing to filter through you know, an, an extremely long list uh, from project to project.
1: Yeah, cause, um... When you're doing eight jobs at once, you kind of have to know if you have to pick out typefaces, you want to just get cut to the chase. Uh, uh, Picking out a typeface shouldn't take you an hour. It should take you a matter of minutes, usually, to pick a few that are going to be relevant for that particular usage.
0: For sure. Now, I want to talk to you about font licensing when working on logo design and uh, branding. As a designer, I've collated together a fairly comprehensive library of fonts, uh, most of which I've uh, purchased a license for so that I can use those fonts myself. One area, however, where I've, I've never been sure about is how you ensure that your client also owns a license to use that font too. How do you typically deal with that situation? Well, to me,
1: it's all in, in developing a logo, you know, it's, it's going to be for a larger system. Uh, graphic design is largely creating systems, especially for identity and branding. It's a, it's a system that a company is going to use to express its personality, right? To stay in the minds of the consumers or, or people around. And so what what I've always done is is I will, when developing comprehensives, to show the client, I'm already looking at the typefaces that I have and I'm using a particular font, let's say, for a wordmark, and let's say I have three of them. I'm going to show the client three different uh, fonts for those logo types. Once they buy off on one, we purchase that. That uh, I have the client purchase that particular font for their word mark. Just that particular font. So it's like thirty, forty dollars.
0: So would you buy that on behalf of the client and invoice them accordingly, or would you request that the client actually purchases it themselves?
1: I, I always have the client buy it. I'll set up an account if they want me to, but I recommend that they purchase it so they have it and they own it and there's no legal you know, issues or anything like that.
0: Okay, that's useful advice. And, and to clarify on this, as a designer, would you still need to own a license as well as your client, or could you ask your client to send it over once they purchased it? I usually
1: will. And here's what happens is you're not supposed to transfer fonts to one another, just like music. However, you only get into legal sticky situations if you publish that font. So for instance, I tell my students, you can use fonts off your computer, you know, like the default fonts, because they come with your computer. Someone gives you a font, you can use it if it's not published. So if, if you use it just for printing out a paper for your, your history class or something is perfectly fine. It's when you have to produce a thousand of those and you put them online with that typeface in it, then you have some issues because that now that that's actually being published and used. So it depends on if you're publishing or not. That's the way I've always tried to try to look at it.
0: Okay. So based on that, would it mean that as the creator of the Lego using that typeface that you don't Specifically, need to own a license yourself because you're not using it commercially. Correct. It would only actually need to be your client since they are the one using it um, publicly. It, am I understanding that right? Yes. And if they purchase
1: the whole entire typeface family, um, I'll ask them to give us a copy if it if it's if we can still have it, um, or or use their account to use it off a of Typekit or whatever. Um, but in knowing that we are not going to publish anything with that typeface, we'll keep track of knowing that we're not publishing anything with that typeface. So like if we were to rebrand our studio and we use that typeface that they, that they let that loan to us, we have to repurchase it again for ourselves in knowing that it's going to be in our our studio's identity. yeah, so we'd purchase it for ourselves,
0: yeah. That's just the honest way of doing it. This is really interesting. I, I wasn't aware of this. Um, so to clarify, how would you, how would it work if you wanted to present that work in your portfolio? We're still
1: showing their work that they own. We just have the right to show their work, which is in the contract. We're just borrowing it to show what we did for them, but it's still their work.
0: This is interesting. I, I was always under the impression that as a designer, you needed to purchase a license for every uh, typeface that you own. Um, so I really appreciate you explaining this thank you my pleasure now I'm aware that over the years you've built up a considerable amount of knowledge around typography and I'm sure you've read a lot of books on the way Um, based on that are there any books that you would recommend to the listeners to help them effectively learn typography in more detail I
1: do I have quite a few beginner ones and for training I wouldn't Re- really, the books for typography are really for reference. I would say, typography—you really do need to be trained over a certain amount of time to get it to stick in your in your mind and for your career. I highly recommend learning, you know, on site. Um, there are drills and things you could do online, but it's one of those things that you kind of have to be in the room to to learn from a you know master or something. But yeah, I have some books on our our type ed website that I enjoy. One of them is uh, for beginners. It's uh, called Type Matters by Jim Williams. That one's very simple, well-designed. For a bit of an upgrade into like a type 2 level book, I would go for the elements of Typographic Style by Robert Bringhurst, or Reading Letters, Designing for Legibility. I'm not sure what the author is on that. We don't have that on there. And of course, you know, depending on what software you're using for typesetting, I would recommend Nigel French's InDesign Type Professional Typography with it with Adobe InDesign that one's very good because it just takes you through InDesign with a type-centric kind of mentality which is great because that's how we're producing a lot of type these days. And then for my classes and, and like the higher end stuff where you want everything in one spot the Complete Manual of Typography is all, also very good. And that's by uh James Felice
0: apologies to interrupt but so that listeners aren't uh quickly writing this down um before we continue I just wanted to add that all the books and resources that you mentioned here uh, will be included in the show notes for this episode um I think this will be episode seven so the link should be logogeek.uk forward slash 3.7 now apologies I'll let you carry on Great. Yeah. And
1: then for some really nerdy, casual reading, I recommend this, the shady characters one. It tells you about all the backstories of these glyphs that we've, these funny glyphs like ampersands and pilcrows and everything that we, and there's an interesting one in there called the interbang, And that's the combination of an exclamation mark and a question mark, which is equivalent to saying, what? Like that, you know, it's really interesting. It's a really nerdy typography book, but it's fun. It's very fun. And uh, I'm not sure. that That's by Keith Houston. That's who that one's by. Yeah.
0: This is great. It it sounds like uh, lots of reading for everyone. (laughs) Yeah. No, yeah. So far, we've spoken primarily about selecting like pre-designed typefaces. But I'm curious if you've ever had any experience where you've needed to design a a font or typeface from scratch.
1: I have developed typefaces by hand. One in particular that we did was for uh, a nonprofit in, in downtown Los Angeles. It was called the Pacific Asian Consortium on Employment, and it definitely needed to be consolidated into, you know, an acronym for sure, because it was such a long name. And uh, so, basically, the whole the whole thing that this this organization did was find people work, in essence, kept them busy, busy as bees. Let's say, right, a busy bee worker. And so we we drew the four characters as a P A C E as if there were four bees running around in circles, right? And made the actual characters in the path of the flight of those four bees. And so we sketched it out like, so it had great energy and movement. And that's what we were after in communicating this organization's value was the energy and, and the, th- and the uh, work that they give um, citizens of Los Angeles in that community. They kept them busy as bees, So that was the whole thing of drawing those characters by hand, because he couldn't find a typeface based on that. It would take us forever to find it. And I never even seen anything like that, and I look at type every day. So we had to create it from, from scratch, and we did straight from there. So that's that's like our experience of, of designing typefaces. Or, or That would be for particular characters, not necessarily a typeface, but for a pr- pr- specific purpose.
0: You know. So in terms of a, a process for developing those letters, is there a, an approach or certain steps that, that you might take when working on that? Like, I, I appreciate this might be quite hard to explain, such a, a visual thing.
1: Yeah, let's see if I can. I'm, I'll, it'll test my articulation skills, won't it? <laughs> yeah, so the, the PACE, the main thing about that was when, when designing typefaces for us, especially if it's not an entire alphabet, is to make sure that the characters that we're doing are completely readable, and so the A was and the E were of, of concern because, especially the A, because there's two kinds of A's in the alphabet as far as Roman characters. You have a single story and a double story A, and uh, we wanted to use the, a double story so it would read better, so it read more easily. And so it really was just a kind of a flip around of the actual lowercase e. And all four of these characters that read pace or P-A-C-E were all in lowercase. So it would read much easier. Because if we used uppercase, if we use an uppercase A, you know, bees don't fly at right angles. So that didn't make sense. So with the lowercases, they were much more round and we can actually get away with. And it was more friendly to have it in lowercase as well. And it was easier to read. So the whole thing when for me, over the years, is just making sure that the reader is—I'm cognitive of the reader—and with my work, that the type is a- easily able to read. Because if they can't read it, what's the point of graphic design, right? So that was the main thing about that particular project—is to make sure that the, since it was such a free-handed kind of thing, uh, in developing the four characters, we wanted to stick to the readability of an actual Roman character as close as possible. That was the main thing in that process. And it really just, as far as process, went through, you know, pencil sketches on paper and and then moving to the computer and digitizing and then lots and lots of iterations, of course, to get it just right with the kerning and the the line weight, like how heavy do the the lines have to be to read but still light enough to represent a bee's path of flight and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of factors in there in, in developing once we got it digitized.
0: Can I also ask if you've had any experience designing an entire typeface?
1: I have not, actually. I get asked that a lot. I get asked that a lot. But when I explain to people, especially my students, they always ask me, so where's your typefaces? And I said, I don't have any. Because developing typefaces is more of an engineering kind of mind. It's less of a graphic design kind of mind. There is so much engineering in developing typefaces and all the glyphs. Hundreds of glyphs that you have to come up with, accent marks and everything that are all based on the characteristics and the design of that particular starting font like a regular weight. And then developing it out to a thin or a black or an italic and a bold italic and so on. It takes quite some time. I I've, I've, have friends that are font developers and it just takes them a year or so. To, to get through a typeface. and But it's, it's 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 an engineering effort. Now I used to be an aerospace engineer. I went to college for aerospace engineering. But then I switched over to the art side and design. So, but it is more, of it definitely is more of an engineering mentality. Everything's done on a grid, on a micro scale kind of a thing. And um, I, if I were to develop one, a couple actually, I would probably do my parents handwriting. So the scripts, because my, my mom is right handed. And she writes in a normal, formal way. She was taught in penmanship back in the 50s or whatever. And my dad is left-handed, so he has a reverse angle to his type. So, they're both opposite angles. So, if I, if I were to develop them, I would probably just call it mom and dad <laughs> of uh, two different scripts. My dad's is really fascinating because it's, it's literally like a, 40, a, a, a negative 45-degree slant the other direction because he's pushing the pen. Whereas a right-handed person will will pull the pen, so he has to push it into the paper because he's left-handed. So he has that reverse stress or reverse stress to the the angle of the, the characters.
0: I just want to take a short break to tell you a little bit more about FreshBooks, who has sponsored this season of the podcast. If you're a freelancer or business owner, you may have done your tax returns before and you'll probably be well aware that it can be a real nightmare if you're not organized. When I started my business, I was doing everything in Excel spreadsheets but I always felt like this was quite unprofessional and I also felt a little bit unorganized too. That's when I discovered FreshBooks which changed everything. It's a cloud accounting software that helped me to be better organized and keep track of my profits and expenses. You can easily generate reports for your accountant in seconds and you can even import expenses from a bank account too. So it just makes managing your money so much easier. If you want to go and check FreshBooks out which I highly recommend they are offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial which you can claim just by heading over to freshbooks.com forward slash LogoGeek and enter LogoGeek in how did you hear about us section. Now let's get back to that interview. Now I want to dive a little bit more into your area of speciality which is Laying out typography. Like, I, I know that the uh, podcast itself is is about logo design, um, but listeners will also probably be working on other areas of graphic design, such as branding manuals, brochures, literature, and so on. So are you able to talk through some of the methods that you take to effectively lay out content on a page?
1: I can. That's not, no problem because I've been doing it for 20 years. So um, like for a piece of paper, if you have to do a flyer or something, there's usually three levels of information. There's the body copy that holds all the detailed information and then there's a subhead level that gets our eyes to go to that body copy and then there's a header that tells us what's on that page. So it's three basic levels, right? I was always taught before the computer when we were doing cold type to start with body copy first. You have to address the most amount of content first on the page. So in order to do that, you have to lay out a grid on the page and plan it out where all that content is gonna go first. Okay. So once you have all the body copy in there and the subheads and everything's in one font at the same size and you lay it out and compose the page first, I always stress this to my students, compose first, style second. Okay. So compose the page first, get the header up at the top of the page, the subheads where it needs to go, but everything is 12 point in minion, let's say. Then once you have it arranged in the right spots, then you can make your subheads and your header a different typeface like um, Avenir or something and change the sizes. The header will probably be, if your body copy is the range of 9 to 12 point, usually let's say 10 point, then your subheads will be 10 point, but they'll be in bold or black, heavy. And then your headers will be, your headlines will be three to six times larger than your body copy. So it's still in proportion. Okay. I know I'm getting into a lot of kind of math, math side of it, but there is a lot. That's what got me involved for, as an engineer in graphic design in the first place, because it is like music. The math is the underpinning, the numbers are the underpinning of the profession. So, so how you address the page with the body copy first, with all the content, then you can start styling from there. You can start changing typefaces and adding rules like lines and then adding color. I always have my students add color last because when they do it, I've seen them in my office interns over the years. They'll try to do all that at once instead of in the steps that I described to you, the three, three steps for the body copy and the grid first and all that kind of stuff. They'll try to do it all at once with color and everything. And they'll waste about two hours of time for about a hundred words on a page. (laughs) It really should take a half an hour to lay out a one page if that. So I try to get my, we have a boot camp in type ed that I, I drill them, I call them suicide drills. And suicide drills are like a a football exercise where you, where you're standing on the a hundred yard, you know, marked out field, like a football field. And, um, players, start at the goal line and they, they dash to the 10-yard line and back and then the 20-yard line back and the 30-line yard and back. They're called suicide drills. So you do it over and over again until you get it, you know, you build up speed. So we do that in, in with one page. They're supposed to set 900 words on one page in under 10 minutes at the end of the two-hour workshop. So if you could do that, you can, re, you can really start to handle the typography and get it down to where it's really, really Efficient and fast.
0: That all sounds really great. Um I, I, I love the approach that you've described, where you compose first. You know, using just one type of font at, at just one size, because it, it just means that you know up front, um, you know exactly what you're dealing with. Yeah, I see. Um, it's a
1: funny, funny analogy I just thought of. It's, it's like our parents taught us. You know, it's like that Pink Floyd song. You got to eat your meat before you have your pudding, right? So it's the same thing. You have to get the content composed on the page first before you start to make it look good. Because if you think about it, if you do it all at once, each one of those steps only has about 20% of your attention. So if you take it a, a step at a time, you have 100% of your, your attention at each stage because you're not overlapping anything. And so it gets, it gets done with more perfection and efficiency that way. I know it's an engineering nerd thing to say, <laughs> as far as an
0: artistic kind of profession, but but it's true. This is really solid advice, and I, I think the approach can also be applied to so many areas of uh, graphic design. Yes, because um, you're you're really focusing on uh, function over form.
1: Well, that's graphic design's mantra in the first place, right? Form
0: follows function. Absolutely. Um, to expand on this, I've I've heard you speak about the fundamentals of typography that all designers need to be aware of. Could I ask you to um, briefly talk through what they what they are? Well one of the
1: basic ones is like a five-step process. And it really starts with type and then it it really I've used this method for many, many years, and it's what's made me so quick in in producing comprehensives and producing, you know, final art for reproduction. So it goes like this. Number one is the format. Okay. That's the page size or the surface that you're on, whether it's a mobile screen or, you know, a brochure or a banner ad or whatever it is. It's just the format comes first. You have to determine the size. And then at that stage you have to determine how much content you have for that size, if that content's gonna fit. Because if you have a hundred words, there's no way it's gonna fit on a banner ad. It's gonna pop up on Facebook. So you have to determine that. Second is then developing the grid that goes on that page. That's the second step. The third step is putting all the content on the page based on the grid. Getting it all composed just like I was telling you before. Everything's one size, one font. Then the the, the so that's the third one. Then the fourth one is composing everything and styling it. Everything is still in black and white, but now you're changing the style. You're adding rules, elements, and things to the text and stylizing the text, making it sans-serif or whatever else. So four out of the five steps are mostly the type. The last step is imagery and color, number five. That's when you add those and try to get the type and imagery and the color to jive with one another based on the personality of what's written in the content. And that's really the basic steps of of going through layout or any project for me uh, for the last, you know, 20, 25 years.
0: I think one of the big steps that you've mentioned with this is uh, using a, a grid. Uh, like mm-hmm. when I applied grids to my work, I seen a vast improvement in my work. So do you have any advice for working out and uh, developing a grid? I was always told in the beginning by my mentor that the
1: content will tell you what to design. That's probably a profound thing to say because it's true. And it really is that simple. It, it, the content itself, whether it's in the story, will tell you what kind of personality to use, the typeface, what colors to use, everything. It'll also tell you what grid to use based on the format. That's why you have to know the format first. So if you have a newspaper, you can have up to six or seven columns of content. You can have six or seven columns on a regular A4 page because... The reason for that is, is because the type size, the uh, the font size is in a relationship to the measure, in a in a roughly two to one ratio. This is something that was taught to me way back in cold typesetting. I, I don't know anybody that does that teaches this anymore. But if the measure is in a certain width, let's say twenty picas, the type size that goes in in that column is ten points. And it only works with points and picas because this is how we did it in end reports when we were doing it on boards and cold type. But I still bring those principles to my teaching today to make designers sure that they're cognitive about proportion on the page instead of just throwing stuff on the page. They're actually thinking about the proportion that's important. That was taught to me. So if your measure is uh, typically on, you know, um, this, if, if your page is, you know, let's say 40 pike is wide, which is like somewhat of an A4, let's say, that would mean that you're, and you're going to use one column, that means your type is going to be 20 points. Well, obviously, that's too big for you know body copy. Body copy is always in the range of 9 to 12 point or so, depending on the typeface. So, 20 points is too much. So, what do you have to do? You have to cut the page in half and cut the measure in half. The two columns are now 20 picas a piece. And so, now that type size is 10 point and you're within body copy range. And that's how we were taught, is to think of these proportions because typography is all about proportion. The proportion of the type size to the page to the measure and the margins play into it as well. So really to, to formulate, to answer your question is to formulate a grid, it really is a factor of looking at those three elements, the format, size, the amount of content, and then factoring in how many, how many images are going to be in there as well. Maybe maybe it may determine whether you um, have a modular grid or you have a column grid, kind of a thing. When I go when I go through my type one lecture and for type ed, there's about six different grids that you choose from based on format and content volume. For instance, a poster, since it's so large, and you're n- you don't have a lot of content on there, you don't need columns. That kind of grid is usually modular, square boxes, typically. So. Yeah, and then on if you're doing a website, since everything is sliced horizontally, it's more or less a horizontal grid because you can't technically do columns of flowing content on the web anyway. They haven't figured that out yet. So
0: This is interesting. I'm just thinking based on what you said, would you actually create the grid in combination with the content? Like, you know, as you lay it down on a page?
1: I would because if, when I
0: look at that content, that's
1: the first thing I do. When I get a, a like a word file from a client and it's you know it's 40 pages or so, I'll usually take it home at night and I'll read it at dinner or something and I'll have a bunch of highlighters in my in my hand, different colors, to highlight what's going on in that content. So if, the, if I notice that the, the paragraphs are very short and choppy and they're not consistently long or short, I'll try to divide the content at per page. Sometimes that content will get rearranged. I'll ask the writer to go, are you sure you want this content here? Because it sounds like it, you know, it goes with this content up here. Can we move it? Or is that, there's a particular reason for that. So I always try to ask. And, uh, a lot of times, you know, when content comes in, it's not in a hierarchical format, like subhead and header as well. So I'm always, I'm, I'm looking at that as well. So
0: I think that's really sound advice. And, um, I feel that you've really stressed the importance of kind of reading and understanding the, the content that, that you're working with, as well as the importance of, um, you know, making sure that, that content looks great and is well-structured too. Now, to stir the conversation in a slightly different way, I, I understand that here today, I'm aware that you're now focusing on your own business, Type Ed. Um, Can I ask about your background and how you arrived to the point of actually creating TypeEd?
1: Okay. Well, we started Type Ed in 2012 and we were about 10 years into our agency, you know, a studio life, developing branding and corporate reports and a lot of corporate materials and things, packaging and websites and the whole thing. And so we were growing and we were getting bigger and we started to have interns and employees come in showing their portfolios. And what I noticed was in doing a, f- a few s- speeches here and there at local campuses, I noticed that these these students and these recent graduates had three or four levels of type, but they didn't they didn't know anything about type. You know, they didn't know how to typeset properly, or you know, they're putting you know content all the way across the page instead of breaking it into two columns, and so on. So they they were really lacking the fundamentals that I can see. I mean, they had all these type courses and yet they still couldn't do anything. So I had to turn some of them away. Because I mean I, I couldn't see teaching them and that I'm no business you know mastermind, but to pay them to teach them that's kind of backwards. so so we started um, Type Ed to help them to bridge that gap between the universities you know in Southern California here to to be more equipped in the industry because the gap keeps widening and these uh, designers keep coming out of school and falling in the pit. So we try to create type ed in a way where it got them at the speed. There's more drills and workshops and more studying and that kind of thing, and it really does help. That we found. So that's really it was really out of necessity, and that we got that started. So it's been going about six years now. Yeah. So you started that primarily to teach staff who would join your team. It was initially that, but then it started to take effect. We would go to schools and lecture, and uh, one school just you know, three years ago, actually offered me a position to, to, to build their type program. And it was at Laguna College of Art and Design down in Southern California. And so I said, sure, I'll help you get this thing going, because they obviously needed more type. And they, I think they had just one level at the time. I said, no, you need like three or four levels for sure. Uh, you can never have enough too much type in your education anyway, because I was always taught that graphic design is like 80% typography, you know, the rest is all, you know, filler of pictures and, you know, illustrations and everything else. But that's that's kind of the the skill that defines graphic design is typography. And my boss, my first mentor and boss always said that if you can nail that and get that skill down, you're like more than halfway there in this profession. So, yeah. But yeah, it was, it was first it was for the people we were having in our office and then it just spread out to everybody in the community. And now it's kind of grown Wherever we go now, we do speeches for AIGA and um, I have I have mentoring a student in Singapore that's out here visiting at the time being and helping her with her branding of her company and that kind of a thing.
0: Now we're near the end of our time, so I want to ask you one last question. Okay. If you could offer just one piece of advice to uh, graphic designers out there who are just starting out in typography design, what would that advice be? Um, That's easy. I would take as much type as you can, even after
1: you graduate, and more writing. Writing you're going to have to do when you get into the creative director role anyway, so it's always good to have a writing background as well, because typography and graphic design is inherently joined with language at all times. So that would be my advice.
0: This is interesting. I, I know from my own experience, uh, I frequently uh, needed to edit content, you know, to mm-hmm. to make a a design work really well. Mm-hmm. So it's really it's really sound advice, and it's not actually what I was expecting you to say. Oh,
1: <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I know. I see. I'm kind of a geeky designer, I guess, if you will. So
0: no, no, it's yeah. great advice, and uh, it makes sense that if you're designing type, you should also be able to write um well as well indeed, indeed michael thank you so much for your time It's it's been a really interesting conversation and and i think with all the book recommendations and and advice that you have given here um you provided a really solid foundation so that you know everyone listening can can learn uh, much more if they wanted to so uh, thank you again you've been a fantastic guest
1: my pleasure and thank you for having me it was wonderful thank you for having me on
0: I can imagine after that, a few of your heads might be exploding right now. So much great information. Michael, thank you so much for sharing so much with us. If you're keen to learn more from Michael Stinson, I recommend heading over to the TypeEd website, which can be found at type-ed.com, where you can find a range of excellent typography training courses, including a free email course. In this episode, we discussed heaps of books, tools and resources, which I have listed in the show notes for this episode, along with a transcription of the interview too. And you can find that just by heading over to logogeek.uk forward slash 3.7. If you'd like to chat about this episode with me and over 5,000 designers from around the world, you must join the Logo Geek community on Facebook. It's totally free and it's a great place to network with like-minded individuals. So to join that, just simply head over to logogeek.uk forward slash community and be sure to answer the two questions that I ask on there. And that just helps me to ensure that it's a high quality designer only environment. Now, if you've enjoyed this season so far, it would mean the world if you could write a review on iTunes and that will help me to reach more people and also give me a sign that, you know, someone out there is listening. I put a lot of time and effort into these interviews. So I'd, I'd love to hear from you guys. Um, so once again, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek Podcast.